Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, January 12th, 2021 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new, if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer, dead and gone, to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest again today is Dr. Mike Powers. Today's episode is part two of a discussion Mike and I began on last week's episode 11 of the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Here is a continuation of our discussion. Well, you've, you've already talked a bit about the band uh, Clam Nation, and my goodness, you know, it, it was a band that was together for 20 years. What I am really interested in knowing more about uh, is kind of the creative process in that group and the kind of music making that went on with the band. Boy, that was, um, that is still one of the, the greatest musical experiences of my life. And I, I actually came in in the sort of second version of that band. You know, that band started out, actually, I guess I was in the third version, now that I think of it. It started out being sort of just sort of a blues and kind of punk rock and sort of loose, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing, you know, two chords, not even three chords, two chords in the truth. Um, but, uh, but as the guys got uh, um, a little more sophisticated and, and started getting interested in different music, you know, that's when they, they uh, really got into um, Latin jazz and, and then oddly into Charles Mingus. And then um, that's, that's kind of where I entered the band. Um, and, um, uh, you know, that was one of my first regular experiences playing uh, Latin jazz, which I've always loved. It's always been one of my favorite musics. And so uh, to get uh, an opportunity to play that on a regular basis was, was great. So that was one of the first neat things. But then, you know, later on, we started bringing in more and more original music. 
um, you know, and and I wrote for the band, and uh, and Jamie Bravick did a lot of writing for the band, um, and a lot of times, you know, we would we'd we'd kind of go off on our own and and write uh, ahead, you know, just write out a tune, uh, and bring it to the band and and the, the rhythm section, um, you know, we could we could kind of vaguely describe. You know, okay, I'm I'm really thinking. You know, I I, I want to play a one more call, uh, rhythm behind this or or whatever it was, um, and and they could take it from there. Um, so you know, even though uh, Jamie and I and and actually Josh Schmidt uh, played with the band for a little bit, you know, we we'd bring these tunes in, um, but. You know, we 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 knew that we could be a little lazy in our writing because, uh, you know, in the rehearsal process, it could become uh, a lot more collaborative. Um, and I think that that really also led to the band's longevity um, because it it became uh, a creative endeavor and and fun for everybody, um, where it wasn't just okay. You know, we're playing. You know Mike's tunes or Jamie's tunes or tonight we're going to play all uh, Cal Jader. You know we played a lot of Cal Jader and, and things like that. You know it it, it really became this this um, collective effort that um, I, that in in large many ways thinking about it, uh, Josh he was only in the band uh, like two or three years, but because of his composer sensibility, um, he kind of taught us how to rehearse. Um, you know, I, 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 I am a regular listener uh, of, of your show here, which is why it's another you know, huge kick uh, to be talking to you. And I, I listened to the Frank Green interview uh, where he talked about how, you know, they, uh, you know, when you show up for a rehearsal, because you know everybody, you spend the first hour, hour and a half of the rehearsal kind of catching up before you even make make music. Well, sometimes that could get to like two or two and a half hours <laughs> with clamnation, uh, but Josh really kind of got us focused and, and sort of taught us how to um, kind of rehearse a tune, how to think about a tune, how to uh, structure a tune. And so that that really helped, um, uh, not only from a practical standpoint, you know, just okay, we've got two hours to rehearse tonight, let's make the most of it. But then also spurred on this this creative process where we we kind of developed a language where we could, you know, just say, you know, hey, this is this is what I'm thinking, this is the rhythm I'm thinking. And, and then certainly the rhythm section would come back and just say, well, you know, that's that's not gonna work. So let's do this instead. And so, um, yeah, it was, it, that was just a, a, a mm. fun, fun time. Sounds like, a, sounds like it was really a, a very satisfying group uh, to be around. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, maybe kind of flipping the coin just a little bit, uh, you know, particularly for some of my younger listeners, could you talk about uh, some of your experiences, you know, uh, being hired to back some, you know, the big name musicians that you've listed in your bio, 
um, you know, and the kinds of things I think that might be interesting. How did you connect for these gigs? What were rehearsals like? Did you work directly with the headliner in rehearsal or mostly only with a music director or other topics kind of related to these experiences? And I know every one of them is probably going to be, you know, a little bit different, but can you talk about just that process in a general sense? Sure, sure. And, and as you said, you know, these, these things would, would run the gamut, you know, and you would have really tightly focused, tightly organized, uh, at, you know, very well conducted rehearsals to things where, without naming names, it was clear that, you know, they were just picking up a check and they didn't really care so much, you know, and they would, you'd show up for the rehearsal and they would, you know, give you the order of the tunes and maybe you would check your microphone levels and then, you know, said, okay, yeah, good luck. See you at seven. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so a lot of those gigs would, would come about uh, um, just through, through my network, you know, I'd, I'd get a call from a, from a contractor or whatever, because they knew that I could play baritone sax and then the, the appropriate doubles. Um, and then, um, you know, there's usually a rehearsal earlier in the day, you know, so you, uh, there were, if the show is at seven, you know, you might rehearse at one o'clock in the afternoon. So it ends up being kind of an all day affair. Um, and, um, uh, you know, like I said, the rehearsals can, can vary quite a bit. Now I'll, I'll just, I'll talk about some of the good ones. Um, when I uh, got to play with uh, Frank Sinatra Jr., that was a rehearsal. That was an intense rehearsal because not only was the music director there, uh, but Sinatra Jr. was there for the entire thing. And he might not sing, um, but because he was actually his dad's music director for many years, he knew the charts inside out. So. It, even though the music director was there, Junior was actually running the thing and he was scary because he really did know the charts. And just by listening, you know, without the score in front of him, he could, you know, cut off the band and say, okay, trombones, you know, at measure 57 on the and two, I need that short. I, I mean, he knew it to that precision. Um, and that was good. You know, that's, a, that's an example of a great rehearsal because you're, you're, you know, getting focused and, and getting stuff done. Um, with Aretha Franklin, that was a wild rehearsal and it was a great one um, because her rhythm section toured with her and, and she would hire horn players and, and you know, some other musicians uh, in the cities that she would visit. And uh, the person who ran the rehearsals uh, was her backup singer. And she would run the rehearsals with nothing more uh, than her bare feet in a tambourine. And what I mean by that is she would say, okay, you know, uh, guys, bring up whatever tune it was, you know, um, whatever it was. And then she'd count off the tune and she would play Magnificent Time um, just using her body. And, you know, at first you're like, well, gosh, you know, I, I, I think I need to hear some bass and some drums, you know, under this, under these R&B tunes. But 
boy, you, I, you didn't miss it at all. And she, and once again, she knew the tunes, you know, backwards and forwards and up and down. And she could, you know, cut the band off and say, okay, you know, guys, I need more at this point, or I need less, or, you know, Aretha's going to come out and she's, you know, she's might vamp on this section or whatever. So, um, uh, that was a great uh, experience as well. Yeah, well, that's that's super. I mean, you know, I'm sure, like I said, every experience is a little bit a little bit different, but you know, and and I guess that's the key thing for a lot of musicians to remember is you need to be prepared for for about anything. Oh, ab absolutely, yeah, because yeah. anything could happen, and and even after you rehearse and you get the you know lineup, the supposed lineup for the night. Um, you know, they may show up and the, and the artist might say, and, and again, you know, the artist might be at the rehearsal, you know, like Sinatra Jr. was, or they may not. Aretha was not at the uh, rehearsal at all. Um, so, you know, you might get the lineup, but then when you go back for the call and you take your seat on stage, you know, and there's, uh, there's a note on your stand that says, oh, guess what? We're playing these numbers that you didn't rehearse <laughs> you know you got to just be like you say you just got to be got to be ready mm -hmm. yeah what is it that makes jazz unique in comparison to other styles of music um to me uh what makes jazz really unique is the level of communication and and interaction that that has to happen on the bandstand in order uh, for uh, the, the performance and for, for the music to be successful. You know, every, any, any music, it, there, there has to be communication. Uh, you know, if you're not, you know, giving and receiving, if you're not, you know, listening to all, to all the other players, you know, you're, you're done for, and, and again, that doesn't matter what um, what music you're talking about. But um, in in jazz, the the real sort of defining factor of it is how well you are listening and responding to those other musicians on stage, because you know they they the sort of essence of jazz of course is is improvisation you know taking your taking your solo and um you know yeah you can you certainly can solo without paying attention to the rhythm section and for that matter um you know the rhythm section doesn't have to pay attention to you or to anybody else but you know getting back to kind of the way that we started our talk um you know those those magical moments where you connect and where everyone is listening and and responding and and you're on that 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 sort of group consciousness thing because you are and and yeah sometimes it's hard to put into words but where that comes about or how that comes about is because everyone is listening it is it is open to whatever um whatever the other musicians are, are 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 doing or are trying to say and you know certainly in playing um 
classical music or, or even, um, you know, big band jazz where there's, you know, you're reading a piece of music in front of you. Yes, you have to listen. Yes, you have to be uh, attentive and, and communicative um, to make that piece come off well. But um, in, in jazz, in that improvisational aspect, if you aren't listening, if you're just out there kind of shouting on your own when the rest of the conversation is kind of happening over on that side of the stage, well, you, you've missed this, you, you've missed the point. And in a great way that I heard this um, or read this sort of phrased uh, was from, from Eddie Harris, um, whom I mentioned before. He has these, these great idiosyncratic, fun, funny, weird um, uh, lesson books. And uh, in one of these, he, he said, okay, do you, here, I'm, I'm gonna tell you how to understand jazz. This is how you understand jazz. So this is what you do. You, you um, get a bunch of your friends together and you, you all have a bunch of beer and then you put a tape recorder in between you and then you guys decide on a topic of conversation. And once you've all agreed on the topic of conversation, hit record on the tape player and then talk. And then he said, now, after the tape has stopped recording, you know, stop and, and listen back to that tape. Listen back to what happened. Maybe you started on topic A, you know, the, the you know, state of politics in, in the US or, or, or the weather or whatever. But then look at where you finished and think about how you got there. And as you listen back to that tape, you will see that, you know, maybe you stayed talking about politics or the weather for the entire conversation, but probably what happened is you started with one topic and maybe you ended up at another topic. And, you know, when you try to find that, that divergence point of how you ended up on that completely different tangent, you know, that's, that happened because you guys were all listening to each other. And you were all communicating and you were all willing to give and receive these ideas. And he said, and that's, that's jazz. That is performing jazz, is going up on stage. And yes, you're playing this tune, you're playing this written piece of music or whatever. But when you get to the improvising, you have to listen to each other and you have to communicate and you have to be able to kind of go with the guy who suddenly started to want to talk about baseball instead of politics or, or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. That's an excellent way to describe it. The band, Dr. Science, is an interesting name for a band. Although I don't know him personally, I am aware of Dwayne Sturmer and his reputation. Would you please tell my listeners about this band and working with Dwayne? Oh, sure. Well, uh, first, before I get into the story of the band and, and about Dwayne, I mean, the, the first thing that you need to know about Dwayne is that Dwayne is Jeff Lebowski, you know, from the big Lebowski. Yes, the, the, the dude abides. Yes, that's, that's exactly how Dwayne signs all of his emails, which is a riot. But that's so, so just to give you a mindset about who Dwayne is, that's, 
that's Dwayne. He is, he is the dude. Um, Dr. Science came about because uh, my friend Jay Arpin, uh, the drummer from Clam Nation, and I really got into uh, the 70s music of Herbie Hancock, and especially of his Headhunters bands. So we recruited a couple of our other friends, uh, Todd Richards, who's a wonderful musician and producer to play guitar, uh, and Matt Meixner uh, to play keys. And then the centerpiece of the project uh, was Dwayne. Uh, because uh, Dwayne is just such a, a fantastic bassist. And of course, that's the music where he uh, cut his teeth. You know, he, he came up playing that, uh, that music. Um, and it was crucial to have someone like Dwayne in that band because to do that music properly, that, that Headhunters sort of fusion, um, what happens is it's, it's very, uh, the rhythm section, uh, the roles of the rhythm section are very different from a typical uh, rhythm section, as, as, as you know, uh, in that the bassist becomes the timekeeper. So you need a bassist who has excellent time and excellent feel, and then the drummer becomes a little more conversational. Um, and, and it's just a really fun, it's fun music to listen to, but it's, it's even funner to play. Um, so d having Dwayne uh, was, was crucial for that. And he is, he is such a good bassist and he has such good time uh, that, that it made it absolutely crucial for that project. And I've, I've worked with a number of drummers who have also worked with Dwayne and they all say the same thing. Uh, which is that, you know, Dwayne's time and his feel are so good. It's just so easy to play with Dwayne. Uh, so that, that, was a, that was a real treat. Um, and, and the other thing to know about Dwayne is that, uh, of course, he's a, a fantastic singer, uh, too. As a matter of fact, uh, he was, I believe he was a voice major at UW-Milwaukee many, many years ago. It, he picked up bass uh, as his minor, um, and, um, you know, uh, just, just kind of grew from there. So, yeah, uh, and that band was a lot of fun, uh, while it was around, uh, and, and one of the things that made it so fun was playing with Dwayne. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, sure. It's always, uh, always good when you've got a unique personality in the group, uh, to uh, kind of play off of, and sounds like sounds like Dwayne was the man in this particular particular group. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and you're right, both personality-wise, you know, because he he he's the dude, man. You know, he's mm -hmm. just that lovable, affable, free spirit. But you know, when it came to music and his playing, I mean, it's all business, and and that was that was so much fun. Oh, great! Well, super. Well, I'd like to, you know, move on, uh, maybe uh, a little bit of shared experience. I have played some gigs with members of the Milwaukee Symphony, some church gigs, and I'm always bowled over by what great musicians we have in the Milwaukee Symphony. Would you share with us your experiences playing with the Milwaukee Symphony Pops Orchestra? Oh, that was uh, that was a lot of fun too. And uh, I've had, um, uh, like you, I've had other opportunities outside of the MSO to play with some of these musicians. 
uh, and they're just uh, they're just fantastic. And again, um, one guy who pops to mind right away uh, for good reason for sort of shared experience, uh, as you say, is uh, Glenn Ash. Do you do you know Glenn? Glenn Ash, not not it's not ringing a bell right off the top of my head. Well, you might know his dad, Albert, because his dad was actually recruited um, to kind of be the founding uh, music director up at uh, Washington County. Oh, I don't know him by that name. Okay. <laughs> I know yeah. him as Bud. <laughs> ah, gotcha. Well, that's that's Glenn's dad. So and, oh. and Glenn, Glenn got his start actually at Washington County and eventually transferred to UWM uh, and uh, and became uh, part of the, the MSO, which was fantastic. Oh, I see. Yeah, actually, you know, the person to talk to about uh, about Bud and maybe he knew she knew Glenn as well as Nancy, because oh, okay. Nancy uh, taught at uh, the West Bend campus before she came to Waukesha. Oh, wow. And she worked with, uh, with, with Bud Ash. And, uh, so anyway, yeah, she, oh. uh, she might, might've known them. I'll have to talk to her about that later, but, uh, you know, the, the, uh, types of gigs that you play with the pops orchestra. Um, I know I, I, um, the one performance that always stood out for me was the year that, uh, actually, it was the year Marvin Hamlish died. Oh, okay. And okay. Doc Severinsen came to town and kind of subbed for him for the uh, Christmas right. and did, uh, you know, Doc's holiday. And I remember that that was uh, really quite a, quite an excellent uh, concert. And of course, Doc Severinsen was, was awesome as he always, always was. Oh and yeah. Was he primarily the conductor when you were working with the Pops? No, although uh, a couple of years ago, I did get to play with Doc because uh, uh -huh. he was brought in uh, for a, a fundraiser for some organization, and I I, I got the call uh, to play uh, to play Barry uh, in that big band, and that was that was a lot of fun. Um, it was it was really fun because we were. Um, I remember Doc was rehearsing the saxes. We were playing. Um, one o'clock jump and there's that you know the sax solo and yes. so Doc was having us play that over and over again and the way it was arranged you know for the Barry part it was way down in the basement and Doc was kind of giving us some real um uh what do I want to say real oblique direction you know he would say you know play that with great intent but not so much force, it, you know, it was, so it was tough to kind of interpret what he wanted, but eventually <laughs> we got it. And so he was happy and he, he stopped us and he turned to me and, um, and he said, hey man, you get a great sound out of that gosh darn thing. Uh, which was which was pretty cool, except he didn't say gosh darn. I don't, yeah. I, yeah. I, I'll I'll avoid cursing for now, but well, it is a family program, so yes, yes. <laughs> uh, but that was that was fun. So I never I did get to work with Doc in that 
um, aspect. But uh, when I did the when I did the MSO pops, uh, they had uh, conductors who came along with these sort of um, self-contained or, or feature acts. Oh, the whoever the headliner was. Right. Right. I see. Okay. Okay. Well, one of your more uh, high-profile groups uh, that you play with is De La Buena. Would you please uh, tell my audience more about this band and about the music that you play and uh, some of the other members of the band? And then what is it, you know, what do you strive for as musicians? Oh, man, uh, playing with, with De La is just so much fun it's um it's just great music and it's just a, a a wonderful group of guys i mean they're 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 my brothers you know just like just like the guys from clam nation and dr science i mean this is this is my my latest band of brothers uh, as it were and it's just it's so much fun um it was uh de la buena was put together by the the current uh well by the keyboardist and uh, arranger and musical director, David Wake, uh, and then by the fantastic percussionist, uh, Cecilio Negron Jr., CeeLo. Uh, uh, and it started out just as a, as a trio and it's grown into a, you know, when we're at full strength, we got 10 guys in the band. Um, and it came out of uh, Dave and CeeLo's love of, of Latin jazz, and especially uh, kind of the stuff from the 70s uh, um, uh, from the Fania uh, record label. Um, but also, you know, stuff like uh, Cal Jader um, and, uh, and, and, a, and a lot of other acts that I'm just I'm kind of blanking on because I'm so excited to talk about this uh, at the moment. Uh, lots of Eddie Palmieri, uh, too, for example, Hector Laveau. Um, and so with, with Dela, with a group like that, um, the mission is to, you know, play good, uh, very technical, very, very correct music, you know, get the music right. Um, so there is that very nerdy aspect to it. Uh, but the most important function of the band, of course, is not only to produce stuff that is great to listen to, but that that people can dance to. And so the rhythm section, you know, is really important. And, and the rhythm section in that band just functions like a like a single organism. I mean, it's just fantastic. You know, we got Dave on keys and Kevin Christensen on drums and Joey Sanchez on bass. Uh, along with uh, CeeLo and Julio Pavon on percussion. And those guys just give us a, a wonderful bed uh, to lay in, basically, as the horn players. And the horn section is just, it's really my favorite horn section. I've told uh, these guys this. And so we've got um, Greg Garcia uh, on the lead trumpet and uh, Eric Jacobson uh, on the second trumpet. Uh, and then uh, a guy who's just an astounding musician, uh, Aaron Gardner on tenor sax and flute. And it's just it's such a fun organization uh, uh, to play with. And it's, you know, I, I miss those guys terribly uh, because of, of 
you know, being quarantined in the pandemic. And I, I in a group, uh, group text, group chat, whatever it was, I, I mentioned to these guys, you know, back in 2018 and 2019, boy, we would see each other sometimes three or four times a week, uh, you know, with gigs or rehearsals or, or whatever. And to go from that to, you know, uh, we had a handful of gigs over the summer, which was great, but, you know, not like we had. So I, I miss those guys. You know, I, I really miss, miss seeing them and miss pl making music with them. Mm -hmm. Well, I would think, I mean, you kind of went from, uh, you know, 60 miles an hour to a dead stop. And oh, it sounds gosh, like, yeah. uh, sounds like uh, a band that uh, plays at a very high level and also has a, a, a really a great deal of fun performing. That's, that's really the, the best of all, all possible worlds as a musician. Oh, so absolutely. Sounds, it, sounds great. It, it is. And there's, you know, virtually every gig, someone plays something or does something, you know, we, we kind of jokingly call it like, you know, the, the gold star moment uh, of the night, you know, and, and it's, it's fun to just kind of listen for that and, and watch for that. And, and that's, you know, what makes that band so exciting is that, you know, it, it could be anyone or it could be all of us, you know, we, we earn our gold stars for that night. And that's, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. Well, I'd like to shift gears for a little bit. Uh, I know that um, in your bio, you talk about uh, Josh Schmidt, uh, the composer, and I'd, I would like it if you would talk about Josh and, uh, and uh, your work with him. Oh, yeah. Um, Josh uh, and I met uh, when we were at uh, UWM uh, and playing in the jazz ensemble. Uh, together and Josh is uh, is a very good uh, keyboardist and pianist. He will he will tell you that he's not very good, but but I I think he's he's quite fine. Um, and uh, Josh was uh, is a very talented uh, composer and was was very precocious. Uh, he was getting commissions to write pieces for local theater troops and local dance troops while he was an undergrad. Um, and so when he would write things that required instruments other than keyboards, uh, he'd, get, uh, he'd get his friends and his uh, colleagues from, from the music groups at UW-Milwaukee to record these. Uh, and so, um, because of my association with him through the jazz ensemble and through Clam Nation, um, Josh would hire me uh, to do a lot of uh, a lot of the woodwind parts, mostly saxophone and flute. Uh, and it was always fun. It was always an adventure uh, with Josh because, uh, yes, he would usually hire me uh, and guys like Jamie Brevik. Uh, uh, and actually, uh, he'd hired Joe Aaron a couple of times, and Joe's son Rick, who's a phenomenal flutist. You know, he'd hire us to do the jazz stuff, but but sometimes it would just be, you know, weird stuff or wild stuff. And even with the jazz stuff, you know, he'd tell us, okay, you know, on this take, you know, I want you to play just very minimally, 
or on this take, you know, play very busy or, you know, just play like one measure and then lay out a measure or two, you know, and he would uh, cut and paste all of this stuff together depending on, on what he needed. And I remember there was one in, in particular, one session in particular that was really tough for me um, because, uh, so it was for a play and in the play there is a, um, there's a captain on a ship and to keep himself occupied during his long sea voyages, the captain had a little flute in his pocket or something like that, that he would play uh, and he wasn't supposed to be very good. <laughs> he, he was supposed to be a very poor musician. So Josh gave me this, um, this part, which was just some old sea shanty that he found somewhere. He said, okay, Mike, I want you to play this um, like, like you're a really bad musician. And at first I said, okay, well, that'll be easy because I'm a really bad musician. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, being serious about it, you know, I, I would, it was really tough to do. Cause like, you know, uh, you know, when you sit down, I mean, your first instinct as a musician, your every instinct, your everything is okay. I have to play this perfectly. I want to play with my nice sound. I want to play the rhythms correctly. I want to get the articulations, the dynamics, all that. Um, so I remember thinking, okay, I'll play this really poorly. Um, and I, and so I tried my best to screw it up. You know, and then and it was a short little thing, six bars or something. And then Josh gets on the intercom and he's like, no, too good. And it was too good, Mike. <laughs> so, so, you know, and, and for this stupid little six or eight bar thing, I think we ended up taking 20 takes of this because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't play badly enough. Um, so I, I just, that, that's one that, that really sticks out. Um, uh, but but yeah, working with Josh and getting to do uh, all these different projects was just a real fun adventure. Um, it, it was it was really cool. Oh well, that's great. That's great. And, it sounds like it was a lot of fun and, and a very different kind of uh, playing experience. I cannot think of a single time in my my background where I've uh, ever been uh, chided for not playing poorly enough. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. yeah well, and, uh, so yeah. Anyway, we're you know working with Josh was was great, and and uh, I think he's back in Milwaukee now. Um, I talked to him about a year ago, and he was gonna we were gonna try to get some some more projects going, but then of course the pandemic hit, and I'm not I haven't heard from him in a while. So um, so Josh, if you're listening, I. Let's get in touch. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, you know, speaking uh, again of the of the pandemic, do you have any uh, musical or recording projects uh, that are kind of in the works uh, for uh, you know for the future? I mean, to hit the ground running once again when it's once again safe for us to uh, to to get back out there. I have a I have a couple of things that I I wanted to do um, you know personally and selfishly and one of these you know this will be my last rant about the pandemic I, I promise um, but I was I was really disappointed um, because uh, last February I had talked with 
Eric Jacobson, who was booking at the estate, and he had given me a, a, a residency through April. I was going to have all the late night sessions uh, on Saturday nights in April. Uh, so I was going to have my quartet play. And so the idea was, you know, we'd spend four weeks sort of rehearsing and workshopping tunes uh, in a live setting because I, I always, even though we all ask each other as musicians, you know, you do this too, you know, you ask your friends to come and rehearse with you. But I, I always feel bad when I can't pay the guys for, for the rehearsal, you know? Um, so we were going to treat those four gigs as like the rehearsal and then, um, you know, maybe a couple of weeks later get a, like a headline slot and then record a, a live set uh, at, at the estate, which would have been so much fun. So once, um, uh, once we're able to get back out there and, and do things, that's something I'd like to pick up again. Um, and another thing that I've gotten really interested in uh, is, um, you know, taking, taking pop tunes and, and deconstructing them. And so I'd, I'd really like to get into that, kind of inspired by my, you know, the anecdote I told you about listening to Ben Allison and, and his version of uh, Someday We'll All Be Free. I've, I got inspired by that, and I'd like to do that with, with some other pop tunes. And so that's, that's another sort of at least indefinite goal at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. Well, you know, it sounds like uh, sounds like some plans for the future that we'll all be looking forward to. Well, Mike, uh, as we kind of bring things to a close, is there anything else that you would like to add or tell my audience that uh, I haven't asked you about? I don't. Uh, I don't know if there's anything that I want to cover that that you haven't asked about per se, but I would uh, just encourage anyone who's listening, wherever you are, um, you know, when we are finally able to, you know, resume some normality and the music clubs open again, um, please go out and support live local music. Um, you know, there are so many good musicians and, and great bands wherever you are. Um, and so just just make sure that you um, that you support these folks. And yeah, it'll be weird, you know, to kind of get back into that habit of, of going out and seeking these things out again. But um, when when you uh, I as as a performing artist and, and you know this too, Craig, you know, seeing a live audience in front of you and getting to play for that live audience, there's there's nothing like it. And, and yes, there's the financial aspect of it, you know, and that's great and, it, and that's really important, but boy, just, just getting to play for an audience yeah. and especially an audience that's appreciative and that wants to hear the music, um, that's, that's the joy of all of this. No, that's I'm right the there with you. I, you yeah. know, I, I'm doing a lot of playing, but I'm getting tired of my metronome and my tuner <laughs> as my audience. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So um, I, if if I'm going to leave the folks with anything, it's, you know, please go out, seek out live music wherever you are, support your, your local musicians, um, you know, buy their recordings, um, you know, it's, that's, that's what we're going to need. And frankly, there's a lot of musicians who are going to need that financial support. So, 
All right. Well, I'll certainly uh, echo support for that as well. Well, Mike, I want to thank you for taking time to talk with me uh, over the course of these uh, two uh, podcast episodes. It's really been great having you as a guest. And uh, I certainly want to wish you all the best with what I'm sure will be uh, continued uh, success uh, with your musical and, as, and your academic future. Oh, thank you so much, Craig. And like I said, I'm, I'm just so touched and, and honored and happy that you asked me to do this. Uh, and that you let me sort of ramble on uh, for as for as long as I have, and so I'm I'm really grateful. So so thank you for this opportunity. Well, you're very welcome. You take care now. You too. Thanks, Craig. That wraps episode number twelve. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites. YouTube videos of artists' performances are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I will be interviewing Nashville-based country singer-songwriter George Shankleton, highlighting his new album, Out All Nighter, which was released on December 4th. Episodes number 14 through 18 will focus on Milwaukee area musical entrepreneurs, including Allison M., Barb Steffen, Michael Grassman, David Harmonica Miller, and Matt Antoniewicz. So don't you dare touch that dial and stay tuned. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day. My discovery composer this week is Sigismund Thalberg, born 1812, died 1871. Together with Franz Liszt, Thalberg must be ranked as the greatest virtuoso pianist of the mid-19th century. He played almost exclusively his own music, consisting mainly of fantasias on favorite opera arias. His Fantasia, Opus 33, on themes from Rossini's Boise, brought him wide recognition and admiration. Talberg began his study of music at the age of 10, when he had been sent to Vienna to prepare for a career in the diplomatic service. From the age of 14, he appeared with great success as a salon pianist, and two years later his first works were published. His international career began in 1830 when he toured England, Germany, and other European countries. In 1836 he won considerable success and renown in Paris, increased 
When the following year, Liszt challenged Dahlberg's position as the leading virtuoso in Paris via an article criticizing Dahlberg's compositions. This began an animated controversy in the press between Liszt and Fetis, who considered Dahlberg to be the greatest living pianist. The rivalry came to an end with a concert performed jointly by the two virtuosi in an agreement to cooperate with other composers in writing variations in tribute to the Princess di Belgioioso. From that time, Talberg enjoyed enormous popularity, traveling as far as Brazil and Havana. He also lived in the United States for a time, giving successful concerts, teaching, and organizing opera productions. In 1858, he bought a villa near Naples, where he began to tour less, retired and spent his last years as a vintner. The Old Music Guide lists over 80 recordings of Talberg's keyboard music, leader, and chamber music. So there is a lot of listening to do to familiarize yourself with this lesser known 19th century master. My awareness of Talberg was awakened by a new recording of his music by pianist Paul Wee. In my show notes, I have included a link to a performance on YouTube by Paul Wee from his newest recording of Talberg's L'Art du Chant. <laughs> 